Hello and welcome to Vinyl Community Podcasts. This is David Bianco from the YouTube channel Safe and Sound Texas Audio Excursion. Today is part one of a two-part series, an interview with Prince's audio engineer, Susan Rogers. She's the breakthrough engineer that spent nearly five years with Prince during his really hot formative years, starting with Purple Rain. The thing about Susan, beyond being a female engineer in an arena that normally doesn't have gals involved, is that she learned on her own and really did it the hard way kind of like Prince himself. And she really was a person who broke the glass ceiling and also moved on to do some of her own work in production and mixing and engineering beyond Prince. But today we're going to talk with her on that, but more so about what happens in the studio. What goes on? What is going on when you do the recording process? What is the producer responsible for? What is the engineer responsible for in the mixing? Talk about mixing and the remastering and even remixes that have gone on and get her opinion on that. And talk to her about her new book, which is really an interesting piece of work. So Susan, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, David. It's a yeah. pleasure to talk with you and your audience. Thanks it's for having great. me on. It's great. Uh, by the way, Susan has a book out. I want to make sure I mention that because I've read part of it. And if you want to give us a little bit of snippet about what that's about, I want to make people aware of it right out of the box. Oh, it's called, uh, thank you. It's called, This is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. Um I've had this long career as a record maker, 22 years, and then I had success as a record maker. By record maker, I mean I worked as a producer, an engineer, and a mixer. And then uh, I had a hit record in the late 90s, so I went to college with that money. I did eight <laughs> straight years and got a PhD in music perception and cognition. So all of that has led up to my writing this book about music listening with the focus on the act of listening the consumption mm -hmm. of music rather than the creation of it. So I'm writing about music listening from the perspective of a record producer and of a brain scientist and of what I am, which is a lifelong non-musician. I don't play or write <laughs> or sing, never had any desire to. My relationship with music is strictly um, on the on the receiving end of it. So that's what the book is about, and it's available everywhere. Great. Yeah, I got it uh, on Amazon, been reading it on Kindle, and uh, it's really interesting with the chapters, uh, how you break out different kind of music, and it's kind of a challenge almost by reading it. It kind of challenges the reader to to get into some things maybe they're not as used to. And describe that, because I think that's really mm. cool. Yeah, so it's organized a little bit like a record poll, and I'll bet your viewers know what a record poll is, even if they don't know it by name, but we used to do it in the recording studio a lot. So a record poll is when you get together and you bring two or three records, songs, pieces of recorded music that just wipe you out, that you just love. And when it's your turn, you go around in the circle, circle you play records for one another, songs for one another, not the full album, but you, you play a track for each other. And what your job is, is you have to say why that record just makes you weak in the knees. And you have to reveal <laughs> a little bit of something about yourself. It's sure. an intimate form of sharing because when we listen oh. to music, what happens up here in this private place in our brains, 
it's private to us. We could talk about the neurobiology of that if you were interested. But when we listen to music, it activates circuits that are involved in our self-awareness and our self-identity and our self-consciousness. So when you are sharing with someone and describing, this is the record that just kills me. And here's what it does. Here's what I'm listening for. Here are the parts that make me crazy. You're sharing a private part of your psyche. And when they do that for you, you're getting to know your friends better. And you're also getting turned on to new music that you might not have liked otherwise. I did not structure this book to be a vehicle for the music that I love best. Some of the records I talk about are records I love. Others are records that I don't. It's it's not about me and my taste. It's about the listener and their taste. Right. Yeah, so it's about the, you know, the broad expanse that's out there and kind of what does trigger us one way or the other. Yeah, um, yeah I had a recent interesting experience in that arena, and that is I'm a big fan of ELO and Jeff Lynn, uh, mm. all the work he's done. And I think we all know, you know, their hits and, you know, their reg- their albums that were big and everything. But his first album when he came back in like 2001 was called Zoom. And it's a very not well-known album, and uh, they didn't make many. I I have one, and I think it's worth like $600 because they didn't make many. And it is on CD, but it didn't sell very well. But when I listened to like the first eight of 12 songs on there, they were like so categorically perfect. Jeff Lynn, it was kind of like he had pent up inside, I think, all of that for those years when he wasn't making it. And he just, you could just, it's just perfect. The writing, the music, it just kind of embodied his whole works up to then. And and it just, I don't know, it just hit me in a way it was like, wow. And so few, few people know about that album. Well, that's mysterious because it sounds like it should have been uh, better received. What was it about that record that connected with you? What did you love about it so much? It just, uh, the warmth of the the melodies were so engaging and they Uh caught me and, and, and the bridges and just, you know, just little pieces of music that just kind of patterns that just were repeated and just had a warmth and a, and like a, it was almost like, I mean, some of the songs, it's, I say it's like a love letter. It was almost like getting back Jeff Lynn from the grave almost in the, you know, the musical grave. Mm-hmm. I think part of it was just the longing mm-hmm. for having him back. And, and yeah, and, and it just, uh, I don't know. And I think it's one of those albums I take it and I go, because I used to be in radio years ago. I could look at that album. I said, I could pull six singles off this easily. That's wild. That's now, wild. Now, whether yeah. they would be good in 2001 with the way music changes, yeah, you know, they would have been good in the 70s and 80s when huh. they were big. But okay. would they be big? I mean, you listen, I don't know. I, one thing I do, I listen to songs from the you know old, oldies, right? Mm-hmm. And I think to myself, would they ever be popular today? It's probably like... <clears throat> Heck no. Really, I don't think they would, really. It's a funny thing, and it's been on my mind lately, that notion of timelessness and what it is about a piece of recorded music that makes it, uh, that time stamps it with the sounds of the era versus 
uh, being rather timeless. But th- to say something about Jeff Lynne, the thing about him is he had one of the most distinct sonic signatures in all of music. Oh. You can recognize a Jeff Lynne production. Production. So, Petty, yeah. yeah. I mean, George the, Harrison, the, yeah. The stylistic uh, elements of a Jeff Lynne record would be something that would be uh, easily categorized. Right. So, so that's a great segue, because one of the first things I wanted to ask about was, so let's talk about the differences between a producer and an engineer and all. So let's just start as a producer, mm-hmm. because uh, what what the role is, and, and you had experience in that. Now, you're the big one that you, was it Bare Naked Ladies that you mm-hmm. had the big? That was a big successful commercial hit yeah so that was the one that funded your college mm-hmm. yeah so, so your college was funded by bare naked ladies okay it we truly can say this. was <laughs> I, I i dedicated my doctoral thesis to them because they made it possible it was the success that we had with that record that made it possible for me to quit my job and go to college and i entered college as a freshman so i had to start from the yeah. ground up and at what age uh, was that i was 44 okay yeah. i thought yeah, yeah. so i i yeah. loved it I know. It's well, great. Uh, so a, a, a producer is a little bit analogous to a director on a movie. So a okay. producer is, we say, responsible for the behavior of people on a record, whereas the engineer is responsible for the behavior of equipment. So the producer wrangles the raw material, the, the performers, the songs, um, the studios, you determine the environment in which the, this record will be made and you're overseeing performances. So the producers on the other side of the control room glass, as uh, T-Bone Burnett, the great producer T-Bone Burnett would say, following these musicians like a leopard, you need to put your head right in their heads and track the musical gestures that they're making with their hands on their instruments, with their feet, their arms, their legs, their lips. You're tracking those gestures. And as you're tracking those gestures, you're listening uh, from two perspectives. One is the output, the performer's intentionality. Is that singer singing her heart out? Is that bass player truly flirting with you and getting down there in the dirt to 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 generate that bass tone? Is that drummer giving us the feeling of flirtation with that rhythm he's doing right there? So you're there right there with the musicians listening in terms of their output, but you're also going back and forth and listening in terms of your own listener profile. Will this work on a record? Will this work for other listeners? Is there anything going on here that is going to cause someone to swoon or fall in love or pay attention? Or is there something that's going to distract people or bore them, turn them off? So the producer is responsible for all of that. On top of that, you're listening for the lyrical content and you're thinking about the marketing of this artist. Did that artist just say something in a song that is going to turn people off, hurt their public reputation? Are these lyrics too vague or obtuse? Are they too simple and plain? So all of that is the producer's wow. responsibility. Like casting actors in a film and 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 noticing their chemistry between them. It, it's, it's a nuanced art. The engineer, on the other hand, is closer to the cinematographer on a film. You have to decide as a cinematographer how to frame a shot. And I don't know anything about filmmaking, but I know enough about watching movies to know that if you've got a couple and they're arguing, you switch back and forth the camera's perspective between her face, his face, her face, his face. Or you can pan back a little further and you can show their relationship to each other and 
how they use body language in this argument, or you can pan the camera further back and show not just this couple, but their apartment and the view out their window and maybe the pictures of the family on the wall, the whole context in which this argument is taking place. So that framing gives us subtext mm -hmm. as to what's yeah. going on. Likewise, in the recording studio, how you mic musical instruments, whether it's dry or reverberant, uh, how how you, whether you 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 mic your piano, let's say, to perform a melodic role or a more percussive role, is this instrument an accompaniment or is it the star of this ensemble? That's the art of engineering and mixing. Mm. That's very interesting. Now you can have a different person do engineering and mixing. Is that true or false? Yeah, and, and in my era, that was that's the most common thing. So in the olden days, olden olden days, in the fifties and sixties, and in the in the early seventies, uh, the engineer would also mix the record and do that's the final stage of it of combining the individual tracks into a stereo mix. But uh, starting with Bob Clearmountain, late seventies, early eighties, and his work with Roxy Music, Bob Clearmountain ushered in the era of the superstar mixer, the, the, the engineer who was so talented at mixing that you wanted to hire that person just to mix your record. And then we were off to the races. So in the 80s and 90s, uh, the star mixer, mixers made a lot of money. Uh, it's um, almost a ridiculous amount of money, as much as the producer for sure. But that was necessary because a bad mix can can break a record and a good yeah. mix can make it just like mm -hmm. a bad producer can break a record and a good producer can make it. So yeah, there's a lot of responsibility in that mixing role. Yeah. There's a lot of cooks in that kitchen, so to speak, and uh, to deliver that end product. Yeah. Yeah. I've worked in all three roles. I've worked as an engineer and as a mixer and as a producer, I love them all. Uh, they all, demand that you bring a different skill set and a different listening mind to the to the work you're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of discussion today because there are remixes coming out. Giles Martin is remixing Beatle albums that his dad had done uh, and that type of thing. And, you know, it's kind of like, so how much, and so there's this discussion about, well, Back then, when they made it, every everybody was in sync with the intention of the artist or what they how they really wanted to hear it yeah. versus what's happening now. And I noticed there's probably not a lot of I haven't seen a lot of remix stuff for Prince, for example, out there. But I don't follow it real closely. Has how mm -hmm. much has that been going on, to your knowledge? I don't know. I don't follow that closely either. I can tell you, uh, uh, my perspective on things like that was. Mm -hmm very much shaped by Prince. And uh, I'm not a big fan of remixing. I don't like the idea of it. Mm -hmm. I myself wouldn't <laughs> want to, I wouldn't want to tackle it uh, unless the artist specifically requested it. The reason uh, I feel that way is uh, in a certain way, it almost kind of diminishes the art form. I mean, what would it be like to just say, you know, I think I want to remake The Godfather or Apocalypse Now or one of those films. I, I want to remake that movie. The implication is I don't think they quite got it right the first time. I think I could do a better job. I'm going to make this movie what I want it to be. Or I think I'll rewrite, I don't know, some great novel or whatever. 
Really? Seriously? Redo like, a painting, I, right? Redo a painting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's going to redo yeah. Van Gogh's Go, right. Starry, Starry Night. <clears throat> I, 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 I don't know. I don't, I don't know why we should be so dismissive of music. Of course, a pop song, three minutes long, is somewhat disposable. But is it really? Is it really? Should we have that attitude toward it? I personally don't. Yeah. And I think these, frankly, some of them are because of the limits of being like a four track originally. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. now they're trying, they used actually some of the Peter Jackson digital technology to extrapolate some of that sound a little more. But it's mm -hmm. really, uh, I don't know. I just, uh, it, it, plus for me, having listened to it from the day it came out. You kind of have this, right. you know, this picture in your brain, yeah. and I and I really just it, it's it's interesting, but it's not my go-to. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, I've I've said this for a long time, but when we're in the recording studio, we're simultaneously making two kinds of objects. You're making a musical object, and you're making a sonic object. Listeners don't go, or they didn't go in my era into record stores to buy sounds. They went into record stores to buy music. The sound is always subservient to the musical ideas, or it should be anyway. Be, I learned yeah. that from Prince. It's the music that dominates and the sounds are just along for the ride, basically, <laughs> which worked out well for me in my career because I was just learning how to be an engineer when I was with him. But uh, folks who, who want to take a, a four track where maybe the drums and the bass are all on one track and separate it out, what they're saying is that we're not modifying the music here. What we'd like to do is modify the sound. Okay, fine, fair enough. But as you said, is it really going to enhance or in any way fundamentally change the musical experience that's going on in the listener's mind as they listen to this record? I don't know. I've always been a servant of music more than a servant of sound. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's funny that, you know, in some ways now beyond not not remixing but remastering where, you know, they remaster sometimes the the nuance of the capability of drawing out maybe a little bit more out of what was there originally and not changing it yeah. is auditorily pleasing, True. you know, because mm -hmm. it's a little cleaner, but it really isn't fundamentally restructured in any way whatsoever. It's just yeah. you saying, I hear, oh, I hear congas. I, hear I didn't hear. Yeah. 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 So it's kind of like uh, putting on a better set of ears or whatever. Yeah. You know. and it, yeah. In fairness to the trained musicians out there, I've been reading about this recently, the difference between the listening modalities, shall we say, of a trained musician versus a non-musician like me. So um, when we have musical training, uh, years of musical training, we have a capacity to listen analytically, to to break down chords into their component pitches, and to, to hear subtle differences in sounds that uh, will kind of go over the head of untrained listeners. So it's, it's this is shown in fMRI studies of the brain that when trained musicians listen to music, they're using more analytical and actually more motor action-based uh, circuitry when they listen to music. They're imagining what it's like to play that. Right. And that 
certainly could be enhanced when you can hear more detail on a record. For non-musicians, we're more likely to activate circuits that are involved with self-awareness and self-consciousness, mind-wandering, self-imagery. We're not doing that detailed analysis of a record. We're doing more synthetic listening to the global whole. These are all equally satisfying and rewarding. They're just slightly different. So Mm -hmm. for me to be dismissive of an audiophile recording or a remix or something that enhances the imagery of it is pretty unfair of me. I mean, there are people who are perceiving real differences there and, and it improves the experience for them. Yeah, I mean, I a good one, one that is done well, like they just started to do the mm-hmm. Steely Dan catalog. I mean, it really brings about a totally enhanced appreciation yeah. for the for the the musicianship and the workmanship of everybody i mean i was looking at like uh steely dan's gaucho i was looking at the credits there's like six women engineers on that thing mm. they used a lot of women i never I realized that. that i didn't realize it either but i use this thing called discogs and by mm. album you can register it and i looked at the, who all was on it who mastered it and all of a yeah. sudden i started seeing there were like eight engineers or nine engineers and six of them were women. And I thought that is so cool because that was, you know, back in the uh, 80s, obviously. It's hard to do. Hard to do in those days. There just weren't that many of us. No, but they were, look, I think those guys, you know, Fagan and Becker, they were, you know, musically, they really were very uh, nuanced, I guess I would Mm say. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think they were probably in their approach. They wanted to take new approaches and respect the musical uh, aspect of it or the musicality of it. And that is why when these new releases are coming out of, of remasters that Bernie Grunman's doing, they just sound so much more open. And oh, okay. uh, it's just, it's just, oh, I mean, because uh, like Can't Buy a Thrill is one of my top five albums. And I, love I just, that too. I know. And I just sat there and my, my jaw hit the ground when I heard it. Wow. Uh, I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, so, yeah. And so that kind of eva- value add to it as opposed to restructuring, Yeah, uh, I think, yeah, it's true. The book I've written about, uh, the, the book I've written describes the listener profile and it describes at least seven ways in which we can get a dopaminergic response uh, a, a neural treat we can get a treat from music listening and this is why we most of us have a very uh, eclectic record collection sometimes you want to listen for the treat of rhythm and other times you want to listen for the treat of musical perfection shall we say uh, virtuoso performance and sometimes it's the treat of arranging or writing or or style uh, all of us have uh, different ways in which we can be rewarded from music listening so yeah the, the, the you know those oh, I've got my phone ringing here but it's <laughs> muted you, you you know those uh, we know those Steely Dan records musically we know how they go we know the lyrics we know the parts we can anticipate the changes mm-hmm. that are going to come up. So you're listening to a remastered record, not because you want to hear something new in the music. You want to hear something new in the intricate details of that music. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a path to a reward in your brain. It feels oh, yeah. good. Yeah, and I can remember where I was when I first heard Do It Again, because it sounded so different than anything else with the way it started, that first minute. 
I'm like, that is so totally different in the pop realm or rock realm that it just intrigued the hell out of me right from the get-go. And uh, and thank goodness the rest of the album lived up to that as well. But but that was just such a unique sound. And I really mm -hmm. love to hear great musicianship that's well-recorded. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, I'm not a big jazz fan, but when I listen to jazz, I really like you know, the, the musicality of hearing those instruments. It's very clean and precise. And it's, yeah. it's, it's a, there you are in, in there. You're like, you're sitting there. Uh, yeah. it, it has that kind of feel. And I just think that makes it very personal. That's one of the dimensions I wrote about in the book is the dimension of, um, well, I contrasted realism with abstraction, but from, all of us have, uh, when we listen to music for pleasure, we have a place where our mind goes visually. Well, nearly all of us, I should say. But we have our visual fantasies that we enjoy. My co-author and I did research on this and collected a lot of data from music listeners in the United States. Um, I always assumed naively that everyone pictured the same thing that I do when I listen to music, which is, I picture the band in the studio, and I've done that ever since I was a little kid. I think I was born to be a record maker because when I'm listening to the records I love, I want to visualize the players and singers in front of me. My co-author is completely the opposite. He visualizes abstract shapes and colors when he listens to music. And perhaps, well, non-coincidentally, that are made with real musical instruments, instruments that you can see and touch and uh, made in real time by real performers. My co-author prefers electronic records, instruments that are designed in a computer and that actually don't have any physical correlate. I think the music that we love, uh, thankfully for all of us, is it's different based on the sort of treats we're seeking out as we choose a record to listen to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's a... And again, that's where it becomes so unique for everybody. And there's no, and yes. that's like when people review a record or what I do that too. And I'm like, there's no right or wrong. This is just what I'm hearing. This is what I'm experiencing. Mm -hmm. uh, because there are two people can hear the same record and have a different experience fully. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. Uh, that happens Very a lot. Very true. I, I, I always taught my students never to be a music snob because when someone likes something that you don't like, all they're saying, this works for me. And it's the same in this sense as food or fashion. What you, your favorite foods um, may be very different than mine. And who cares? <laughs> It doesn't matter. It's kind of all the same. Uh, and the same thing with fashion. I mean, some of us are conservative and some of us have more bold, uh, eclectic taste. Uh, it, you're just saying, for me, functionally, this works. It's the same thing with music. Yeah. So in the realm of actually then being in the studio and let's say the, uh, once we've got the, you know, the, the work to a point where we say, yeah, those are good takes and, and we're going to start to put this together, you know, from a mixing standpoint. Um, I've always been intrigued with what's involved with the decision-making of, you know, what will be in center, what will be left or right, what will be predominant or less predominant in the sound. How does, how does that work? 
This is a little bit like a couple of other art forms. It's a little bit like casting a play, casting and, and staging a play. And it's also a little bit like a painting. But let's take let's take the play. So let's say you've got a you've got a script for your play, and you um you've got actors in this play. Now this play can be an ensemble piece. I saw years ago on Broadway, the front page, and that's definitely an ensemble piece. So you've got a dozen actors and 10 of them have equally equivalent roles. Sometimes in music, your, your players are part of an ensemble. There's no one star in this ensemble. Let's say I was listening to Eddie Palmieri recently. Uh, there's, there's no one star. What is great about this work is the interaction of all of them. In that case, you're going to light your stage from front to back and side to side such that each actor can capture our attention. Other plays are everything from one-man shows to basically a star with a co-star, and then there's just bit players around the sides. So you're lighting the performance to draw the viewer's attention to the, the main characters. It's the same thing in making a record. Some pieces are very singer-songwriter dominated, and I want the listener to really pay attention to these words. In a Bob Dylan record, that's what you want to do. You're framing that vocal. But in uh, in another kind of record, you might not be. Now, in order to frame a Bob Dylan vocal, the most important instrument is probably going to be his rhythm guitar because he's establishing the chord progression and the basic rhythm. So we want to frame Bob foremost, his lyrics, secondly, his, his acoustic guitar, and then the other things around him are merely adding color and a frame around where we want our spotlight of attention. Working with Prince, however, Prince could not have been more different. Prince once said in the studio, he said, in theory, any instrument on a record should be capable of being the loudest thing in the mix. That was Prince's philosophy of music. He did not do singer-songwriter type stuff, certainly not in the 80s when I was with him. He loved bands, and he loved the idea of a lot of great players getting together and showing off their skills on various instruments. On a Prince record, you didn't just frame his vocal. You, you, you couldn't frame anything. You had to let the whole ensemble shine. So in part, it's a philosophy of where you want your listeners' attention to go go and what rewards you believe they might be seeking from listening to this particular record. Well, to say that Prince was a unique talent is a severe understatement, but beyond his raw talent, his ability to find others who had inbred capabilities and passions toward music and give them opportunities and bring them up in the industry like Susan Rogers is very inspiring and it shows how much he had impact well beyond the microphone. And beyond her career with Prince, we're going to learn in part two of our series what she did later in her career and what she's doing now. So join me next time for part two here on our Vinyl Community Podcasts.